servant of God from 1 Samuel. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire, and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both great and small. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter, bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. And so Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered them, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, and the 400 men, he and 400 men, 200 men stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been taken who had been too exhausted to follow David. And when he had been left at the brook Bezor, and they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage." They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. Altogether, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please, um, please remain standing. Um, we have a lot to pray for. Heavenly Father, um, by your spirit, please come be with your people. All of us, Lord, inevitably have had very different weeks. Some 
are here, joyful, ready to listen and learn. Some are not sure why they're even here. But there are some, Lord, whose lives have been torn apart. And we want to grieve it and lament it, offer it before you. Lord, I pray and lift up all of those thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who have lost their lives and the survivors who are now suffering in Turkey and Syria. Lord, have mercy. Strengthen the Christians there to move into the pain and to be in solidarity with them in their grief. And Lord, for the survivors and the students and the families at Michigan State, From the shooting, Lord, please pour out your mercy. And Lord, this week, even at East High School, the shooting of Luis Garcia, Lord, who is in critical condition right now, mercy over him. Be with his family. Be with those students who are grieving. Lord, this world is broken. It is so broken. Come, Do something about it. Lord, we beg you. Pour out your mercy again. We know that you alone have the words of life. So come, Lord, fix it. And if we would be your heart and hands and play some small role, show us. I pray that this time in your word would be a time of um, refreshment and strengthening. Open our hearts, strengthen us, refresh us, that we would know you and serve you with our whole hearts. For we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. When my family and I, when we lived in Puerto Rico, um, our house there had a very small backyard. Maybe it was 15 feet by 15 feet. Uh, It was humble, but it was ours. And all four of our kids, you know, you've seen them around, they're all very close in age. And so when Amanda needed a break, she would just send them out of the house to play in that small backyard This was uh, preferable to the front yard, of course, since they were small. We could just, like, let them loose back there without, you know, too much oversight. Uh, That small backyard was enclosed by, I don't know, six-foot walls. So our kids have played for endless days in that small, walled backyard. It was everything to them when they were young. And it was the land of imagination and the land of adventure. One day, um, I had to go to Alabama for a quick trip so that I could have meetings with the Sending Church, whom I worked for. And I normally took these trips by myself, but on this particular trip, Amanda and the four kids came with me. And uh, so some very good friends of ours, they live on this, uh, it's essentially like a farm of like dozens and dozens and dozens of acres. There's so much land, endless groomed fields. And they invited us to stay in their home for the duration of this trip. When we arrived on this particular day, you could see my, my little buddies, 
they were little back then, uh, staring at these unending fields. And they wanted nothing more than just to play. So I walk them out, and uh, Micah takes off running with his sisters sort of watching. Uh, and then he abruptly stops at about 15 feet. And he turns, and he looks at me, and I say, it's okay, buddy. You, you know, you can keep going. So he runs another 15 feet, and he stops again. And uh, he, he stops, he looks at mom, and then he looks at me, and I realize what's going on here. So I say, it's okay. Mike, it's okay. You can run and run and run to your heart's content. There's, a, there's an expansiveness to this wide open space that is so enchanting to their little hearts. It seemed like there was endless space that reached even to the heavens. In our story today, David is going to experience that enchantedness. He's going to experience another kind of expansiveness, a kind of wideness of God's mercy that you can run and run and run in it and reaches even to the heavens. And when David's soul feels that wideness in God's mercy, it changes him. And my prayer today as we study this passage, is that we would all find our place in the wideness of God's mercy. So we're in the final sermon in this sermon series on 1 Samuel that we have called Searching for a King, and we are going to see him. The eternal King Jesus will show us the wideness of his reign and the wideness of his mercy. So Without further ado, for you note takers, we're going to work through this passage under two headings. Uh, first, we're going to, we'll have undoing the path of anger with lament. And then our second point will be undoing the path of fairness with mercy. Let's begin with undoing the path of anger with lament. So where our passage picks up, David is still not the king, although that will be changing very quickly. Uh, this passage is the last of the wilderness stories for him. That is, this is the last story that we have of David being on the run, trying to evade the capture of King Saul. Now, we learned from last week that David and his 600 men are sent home from that battle between Israel and the Philistines. Um, and he was sent home by the king of Gath, Achish, and the Philistine lords, if you'll remember. And they're traveling back to Ziklag, and this is a 75-mile trek, and they are returning to their wives and children. And they have covered these 75 miles in under three days. And when they arrive, they come upon their worst nightmare. Verse 1 tells us, they had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire, verse 2, and taken captive the women and all who are in it, both small and great. What had happened is they had taken advantage of David's men and his soldiers being away, making Ziklag defenseless, and everything was burned to the ground. All their wives and children were taken away to who knows where, and I suppose there's some cold relief that there were no slain bodies there, because maybe, just maybe, 
their family was still alive. But these men know what happens even if they are alive. They're either made slaves or sold as slaves or perhaps something worse. And when the men feel the weight of what has happened, their hearts are broken wide open. Verse 4 says, Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. This is a painful scene. These battle-hardened men are undone, and they're on their faces in the smoking rubble. Have you ever cried like that? I have. I remember the first time. I was just a kid. My beloved cousin had such a promising life ahead of her. She was driving back to college, and she fell asleep behind the wheel. She didn't make it. And when I first heard the news, I cried so hard, uncontrollably. I mean, I remember the sad hysteria coming over me, and I could not stop wailing. And I did it until my body gave out, and I cried into this unconscious sleep. And that would not be the last time that I cried like that. This is the kind of crying that takes you to the very end of yourself. That's what happened with these men. But from that sad place, for some of them, there is a turn in their grief. Verse 6 tells us that their grief calcified into rage and they opted for raging over lamenting. Verse 6, And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul. When they opted for rage, it needed to go somewhere, and David was the most obvious recipient. In their grief, they needed someone, just someone to blame. Right? David should have known better. He should have left some of his men behind for protection. And their angry minds are working overtime to blame someone. That's what grief turned rage does. It, it thinks it knows, and it feels like it can judge. It thinks it knows why, why this is happening, and so there's someone to blame. Now, David who has lost every bit as much. I mean, the bottom has fallen out for him too, but he does something different. David did not cut and run or prepare to fight or try to make a case to defend himself. But the second part of verse six tells us what he did. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And what we're seeing here are two very different responses. Both sides have lost everything, home, fortune, wives, and even little babies. One side runs to intense anger and rage and blame, and the other side lets the tears come and runs to God instead of resenting him. 
You may have heard it said that people will run to God during pain and suffering. But listen, my experience is that that is not always true. Some run to him, and some grow cold to the Lord because of their suffering, because of their lost dreams. And anger and grief, they're actually like cousins. If you run to God in sadness in your, in your suffering, you need to praise the Lord for it because that is a mercy. See, grief is this emotion that happens to you. And it makes you feel out of control. Grief is a way of surrendering the the proverbial steering wheel. It feels very vulnerable to stay in your grief. But it's important that we do it because in that moment of being vulnerable and staying in your grief, you're allowing God to be God. You're allowing him to have the answers, not you, even though you don't know them. And he maintains control. But it's precisely for this reason that most of us will give up grief and opt for anger. While grief is something that happens to you, anger is something that we do. That you, anger is something that we inflict. Anger gives you the feeling that you're back in control. Instead of being hurt, you're the one doing the hurting. But when you do that, church, listen, you are unseating God as the one who's in control. So you're dismissing God and you're trying to take over. And with time, you will teach your heart to be numb, resentful, and indifferent to God. Opting for anger is spiritually cancerous. It is so dangerous. And for all that is wrong with David, and there's something we've heard about all of his mess-ups, This is why I still love him. (laughs) David strengthened himself in the Lord. David sang his troubles to the Lord. I want you to listen to Psalm 25 while imagining the scene, right? David's writing this psalm thinking about everything that he loves and has been taken by these raiders. He says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth. According to your steadfast love, remember me for your sake and your goodness, O Lord. Remember me for your sake, Lord, not of what what I've done. And I've done some bad things, he sings. And then he says, turn to me, be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble. Forgive all of my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. This is what we're called to do when we face trouble. Opt for lament. Sing our lament to God. 
It's vulnerable. But instead of trying to unseat God, you're depending on him to be your everything in that season of pain. Strengthening yourself in God, you guys, is not this mysterious thing for super spiritual people. It's just prayer. It's worship. It's singing. It's lament. This should be the normal stuff for Christians. This should be the normal stuff for this community as well. Christians have a standing call to join in solidarity with tears. When a crisis happens, we don't run past lament and just immediately move into anger. I know that's what the media does, but not Christians. We allow our love to be genuine by weeping with those who weep. And we don't have to know everything or know all the details about an event in order to weep. Moving into anger comes from this overblown sense of our omniscience, that that we know everything when we don't, and it ultimately unseats God, even just in your heart. What would it look like if when we're faced with trouble and suffering, we didn't run or point fingers or prepare to fight? What if we just sang our troubles with our brothers and sisters? What kind of pain would that save us? What crop of peace could that give us? And what kind of friend or parent or spouse or grandparent or sibling or classmate would we be if that's what we did when we were faced with deep soul anguish? Listen to me. It is safe to make yourself vulnerable before the Lord. Jesus himself would say, I have said these things to you that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. You can be vulnerable. So let's undo the path of anger with lament. Lament is a kind of faith that trusts the Lord over our own misguided sense of omniscience and our anger. Okay, let's transition to our second point in our study. We looked at undoing the path of anger with lament. Now we are undoing the path of fairness with mercy. It appeared that God's grace really did strengthen David And at this point now in our text, David has the strength to lead, the courage to lead this group. So David pursues the Lord through seeking the counsel of the priests, that's verse 7 and 8, and God gave him his answer. Verse 8, the second part says, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. Now these guys have no idea who they're looking for or how they're going to find them, but they are resolute. So 600 exhausted men go into the seemingly seemingly endless southern desert, and after about 12 miles, a third of them can't go on. And it doesn't surprise me that 200 of them couldn't go on. What surprises me is that the 400 still had energy to 
This is day four of traveling almost 90 miles on foot in bodies that have been weeping until they failed. Constant anxiety. So 200 of them exhausted. They're left at the brook Besor with the stuff and the baggage that were unnecessary for the 400 to continue. Now, in our text, we didn't read what comes next. You'll notice we skipped verses 11 through 17, but let me just quickly summarize for you. These men are aimlessly traveling in the desert when out of nowhere they find an Egyptian in the open country. Now, this guy is on the brink of death, so they take time to revive him. And when the Egyptian comes to, David and his men learn that he was a slave for the Amalekites who was just left behind because he couldn't keep up with them due to his sickness. Turns out he had worked for the band of Amalekites who executed the raid on Ziklag. And this guy agrees to lead David and his men to the hideout where the Amalekites were. And when David finds them, they're spread out everywhere. They're drunk, they're dancing, they're celebrating. And so David waits till morning when they're trying to sleep off their hangovers. And then David and his men rout them. And the author records verses 18 and 19 that David and his men recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that was taken. This is the most unlikely and incredible deliverance. An undeserved deliverance. I mean, if you'll remember David's story, he does not deserve this rescue. I mean, because he did the same kind of thing. Remember that? What he deserves is karma. Until God provided his unmerited, expansive Mercy. He doesn't get what he deserves. He doesn't get karma. There's no karma in God's economy. He gets mercy. And they head back with their eyes dripping with tears of joy and their stomachs belting with laughter. And they arrive at the 200 at the Brook Besor. And some of the 400 get an idea. Verse 22 says, that they said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we recovered. Right? In other words, if they're too tired to fight, then tough luck. Right? They didn't earn it. I mean, give them their wives or whatever, but send them on their way. They did not, they do not deserve it. But David, you guys, who has been tutored under God's mercy, under God's unthinkable mercy, David, who most of all knows that he is undeserving, he responds decisively. Verse 23, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hands the band that came against us. Did you hear what he's saying? He's saying, what just happened? God gave us this. This was not our own hands. The Lord preserved us and has given our enemies into our hands. And in that moment, David feels this deep in his gut, the wideness of God's mercy to every one of them. The whole thing has been a mercy from the beginning until the end. It was not luck 
that sent them in the right direction in the desert. It was not their own skill that directed them to the sick Egyptian. And it was not because they're really, really great guys. They are wicked and worthless, the text says. They are wicked and worthless fellows. Right? These are the same guys who wanted to stone David just 24 hours earlier. None of them had this inner moral life that was so righteous that gave them, that got them to where they are. When David responds, he is sure to clarify that it was God who is to be given credit. This is what the Lord has given us. And David is saying, and it's important that you hear this, He's saying, since everything we have is gifted to us by God, we are going to show the same kind of ridiculous generosity that we have been shown. Of those who fought and of those who stayed back, verse 24, they shall share alike. And God is undoing any misguided path of fairness with mercy. This is a wideness in God's mercy, so expansive that you could run and run and run in it and never come to the end. And David even makes this the rule in the kingdom where he is where he ends up ruling as a monarch later in verse 25 it tells us. Now please hear me on this. This good news at the Brook Besor is a sign. It, it, it is like a giant billboard that points to the good news that has changed all of our lives. What do people like us have that we didn't receive? You know the answer to that question. My righteous inner life did not make me a candidate for the mercy that is shown to me on the cross of Calvary. I had not skill, no talent, no savvy. It's not even a stroke of remarkable good luck. But there is one thing that we can point to. The wideness of God's unshakable, expansive Unmerited mercy. Mercy so wide that you can run and run and run in it. And God's people know this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works. You know this. And on our good days, we will admit that we are lost sheep with no way home. And our Lord came and rescued us and brought us home. And I want us to be, Denver Prez, a people who know that deep in their soul, who revel in it, who get lost in wonder about it, and who celebrate it every single week. I want us to be a people who are being changed by it so that we show grace and absurd generosity and mercy to others. And this obscure, ancient story rings true in our hearts because we have all seen it fully in Jesus, haven't we? 
This wideness of mercy is present in every single one of Jesus' interactions. You know, he, when he was with his disciples, he would tell this parable about certain workers who would come and would work all day long, and then other workers who would come at the 11th hour, and they all get paid the same. They all share alike. And he looked at prostitutes who sold their, their bodies for money. He would look at tax collectors who made a living off the backs of his own people by exploiting them. And he would look at wicked and worthless thief who did nothing in his life except that he had the undeserved privilege of being crucified beside Jesus. And they all share alike. I want us to know the wideness of God's mercy so that we can run and run and run it forever because we all alike share in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. If you're searching for a king, search no further. It's Jesus. Amen? Amen.